Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. I want to invite you to support a very special Kickstarter, 1982, Greatest Geek Year Ever, from producers Mark A. Altman, Roger Lay, and Thomas Vitale. 1982, Greatest Geek Year Ever. You're probably asking why. Well, I got Darren Doctorman here with me to tell us about some of the great films. Now, I want you to guess some of the films that came out that year. I'm going to give you a, give you a hint. Still, old friend. Uh, Tron. No. God, <laughs> that was one of the films. Oh. That's not the one I'm talking about. Okay. You managed to kill just about everyone else. But like a poor marksman, you keep on missing the target. Uh, Conan the Barbarian. No, that also came out that same year. Oh, God, you've never listened to me before, Crom. <laughs> okay. Okay. You're making this really, really difficult. I don't have any quotes from Time Rider, the uh, adventures of Lyle Swan. What about this? Um, you're not a replicant. Oh. Hmm. I came across a turtle on a road. You turned it over. Okay. Uh, that's the thing. No, it's Blade <laughs> Runner. Gosh, oh, that also right. came out in 92. But the thing did come out in 1982. And as we all learned, man is the warmest place to hide. <laughs> okay. Have you ever wondered what it's like to put out fire with gasoline? I have not. Do you know what movie that's from? The great David Bowie sang the song. Oh, it's... Uh... I have no idea. Cat people. Oh, cat people. Right. Cat people. Paul Schrader's remake of cat people. 1982. Nastasia Kinski. Exactly. And, and, and John Hurd and Malcolm McDowell, who fans of this podcast may know, played Sauron. Sauron. You mean Soren. Yeah, that's who I mean. <laughs> he played Sauron, the Lord okay, of the Rings. Okay, <laughs> you, you, you know. Okay, let me, let, me, let me try a few more because you're not doing very good at this. Okay, this house has many hearts. Oh, that's uh, that has to be Star Trek too. No, that's <laughs> Poltergeist. God, I know you were a Trexpert. Well, There's I no am. Line like that in Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. I I'm pretty sure there is. It's it's when the it's when Savick comes out of the uh, turbo lift and says, "This house is clean." Okay, I got I got one last one because I don't I don't have anything from I don't have anything from. The Atomic Cafe or, or Missing. Oh, or, I have or, something from the Atomic Cafe. Duck yeah. and Cover. Duck and Cover. That's true. Very good. That also came in 1982. And I'm going to give you one last one last thing. Okay. Okay. Silver Shamrock. Silver Shamrock. Oh, E.T., uh, e. the extraterrestrial. Oh, it's Halloween 3, <laughs> Season of the Witch. Oh my God, Gertie could do better at this than you can. This is no, terrible. I, this is Mark. I'm, I'm is... pulling your leg. I, I knew all of these. I just wanted to have a little bit of fun because all of these movies came out in 1982, the greatest geek year ever. Indeed, they did. And if you want to learn all that is knowable in 1982 and have a great time doing it, check out our documentary on Kickstarter starting June 4th, the anniversary of Star Trek II and Poltergeist release through the end of June and support this Kickstarter. I hope you'll join me in making this really special documentary. I fell in love with the movies in 1982. I want to celebrate it. And I hope you'll help us do that by supporting 1982 Greatest Geek Year Ever with an exclusive logo from Mike Akuda. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts, and we're now the hosts of Inglorious Trexperts Briefing Room. 
curated audio commentaries of significant Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Discovery. So if you want to check out exciting, incisive audio commentaries with the writers, producers, stars, and Trexperts, you want to listen to Trexperts Briefing Room wherever you get your podcasts. That's Trexperts Briefing Room. That's a separate feed from Inglorious Trexperts. And you can listen to curated audio commentaries with great commentary of some of your favorite and possibly least favorite Star Trek episodes of all time. You don't want to miss this, kids. Give these episodes another ear. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. This is part two of our conversation with writer-director Adam Rifkin, and we're just going to pick the conversation up right where we left off in episode one. Enjoy. Well, as we kind of talked about last time in your previous episode, um, obviously, after mouse hunt now you kind of get bumped up you're on a new list of, yes, uh, and I'm also now you're list. kind of you're a family movie guy too well that's the funny thing is that everybody i'm on the studio family friendly movie list right um so i'm now somebody that they think of to write family movies which you know all about right yep. i mean and I, sure, the same with you where oh, i was a little different because it was a spec thing but on sonic it was we were having a hard time you know, there were certain execs who were like, well, can these guys write a family movie? They only do, I wouldn't say offensive, but, you know, like, oh, weird adult stuff. And then now after Sonic, uh, we're the family movie guys. Well, that's exactly what <laughs> happened to me. Can they make weird adult stuff, though? That, that's yeah. exactly what happened to me. So when I made the movie The Dark Backward, I mean, that movie rendered me unhirable in Hollywood because it was a <laughs> dark, weird, gross indie movie filled with circus freaks. You know what I mean? And, and, and people thought that's all I could do. The people who bought Mouse Hunt, Steven Spielberg, Dark Backward was not on his radar at all. You know? So now if Steven Spielberg would, you know, is willing to buy a family film from Adam Rifkin, he must, be, he must know something we don't about family films. So then <laughs> I got a chance to write a bunch of family films for a bunch of studios because I was approved at all the studios as a writer of family entertain you know i will say i was a kid when i saw the dark backwards so uh, clearly uh it was kids appropriate enough well uh, for, oh, yeah. for for weird kids i suppose yes, like you know same here yeah <laughs> um but so then now how does jumanji 2 pop up so jumanji 2 is a perfect example of now i'm on a new list and now i'm up for family movies so i um so there's another project that leads directly to Jumanji. So when, before, um, I think no, it was right after Never on Tuesday, I had written a script that got some traction at Warner Brothers. It didn't ultimately get made there, but the executive who bought it there, um, at this point, after I sold Mouse Hunt, was now at UA. And so he bought the script from Paramount 
to make at UA. Now, at that time, the, the president of UA was the legendary John Cowley, who was also a legendary studio head at Warner Brothers when, and he greenlit movies like A Clockwork Orange and Deliverance and The Exorcist. I mean, just incredible films. And he was a great guy. And so he liked this script that got some attention. And he, um, they tr while they were trying to get that movie up and going, which didn't ultimately happen, I mean, they offered at the time, Jim Carrey was the biggest movie star. They offered him $20 million to star in it. You know what I mean? He just didn't, he just didn't read it. You know what I mean? He had so many $20 million offers. He didn't read ours, you know? Um, they offered it to John Travolta, who was super hot at that time. They, they, they offered him not only the biggest payday he ever was offered, but they offered him Germany. He could own Germany. <laughs> it didn't end up happening. But anyway, so at that time, I became friendly with John Cowley. Subsequently, John Cowley moved from UA to Sony to run Sony. So John Cowley now likes me from UA. So when Jumanji is being discussed, uh, the sequel, I'm on the list. And because he knew me, he pointed to my name. He said, Adam Rifkin, let's, let's bring Adam Rifkin and see what he has to say for Juma about Jumanji 2. So what happens in a situation like that is you're approvable, but you still are up against other writers who are also studio approved. So you have to come in with the idea they like best. Um, so I pitched my ideas for Jumanji 2. And John Cowley ultimately is the one who said, yes, I like your ideas best. Uh, and I was hired to write Jumanji 2. And now what's interesting about Jumanji 2 is they didn't know for a fact if it was going to have uh, Robin Williams in it or not. So I wrote two versions, one with Robin Williams in it and one without Robin Williams in it. And then it, then... He wasn't going to be in it. So then I wrote a whole bunch of treatments for all these other versions of Jumanji 2s that could be made. You know, what, the one that I originally pitched was in a museum where the game it turns up in a crate of other, you know, shit in a back room of a museum warehouse. And the night, you know, one of the night, it, it's a little bit, it's got shades a little bit prior, before this movie existed of Night at the Museum. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, but, um, and that didn't happen. I don't remember why they wanted to suddenly see what all the different directions that could possibly occur for a Jumanji <laughs> movie for a sequel. So then it was just treatment after treatment. You know, Jumanji in the White House. You know, the, the president's kids are playing Jumanji. Oh my goodness. Jumanji on an airplane. You know, Jumanji. It was just so many. Boom, boom. And then none of them happened. And then ultimately, Zathura became the movie out of their development hell of Jumanji 2. So years later, all their Jumanji 2 development sort of led into Zathura. Oh, weird. I mean, yeah, it's so weird that there wasn't a Jumanji 2. It made, yeah, because it, it makes no sense because it was such a huge film. They just couldn't pull exactly. the trigger on one of those. Exactly. I'm also always curious, when you were doing all these different treatments, was that all freebie stuff or were they paying you something for that time? At a certain point, um, it was good faith. You know, I just was doing them just because I yeah. wanted to keep things going. You know, I mean, if I had said to them, you've completely exhausted your contract with me, I just, it just never would have happened. So yeah. I, at a certain point, I just was offering up three versions of Jumanji two ideas and treatments because I just wanted to keep the momentum going, you know? Uh, Were they, um, what were the, 
I mean, were there animals or were they kind of creatures? What what did you what kind of ideas did you have with the uh Well, my original idea was a combination. It was it was less just safari animals coming into the real world. A big part of the movie involved some of the kids getting sucked into the game and the adventures in the jungle of the game. And so you'd have all kinds of crazy like uh creatures that weren't just elephants and and monkeys. So there was a there were these creatures that looked like a totem pole and then all the sections of the totem pole would break apart and like chase you like like uh, little um, oh, Zuni funny. doll warriors and then they'd you know jump back on top of each other and be a totem pole again and there was a sphinx that came to life and there was a um, there was a yeti character there was a uh, what else was there a whole bunch of different creatures oh the one of the one of the main characters was a was a monkey zebra sort of deformed hybrid character with a the bottom like a like the bottom legs of a zebra and the top legs of an <laughs> ape, so it was called a zunky, and um, <laughs> and that became a sort of a main character. Did it talk or it was just yeah kind of yeah a... it talked yeah. Oh man! Oh, so, I was yeah. gonna ask what was the what was the Robin Williams version? The Can Robin Williams version and just basically it was the same story but it involved him being the father of this family that it's um that it's happening to and he has to go you know his he realizes his kids got sucked into the game so he has to then figure out how to get into the jungle to save them that kind of thing but when but the version where that he wasn't involved with uh just didn't have that element in it well. yeah and it's interesting since i mean obviously the the newer ones have the whole video game avatar element, but that obviously yeah. they still went with the idea of getting sucked into the game. Right. Right. Oh man. Yeah. It's so wild. How many avenues you just kept coming <laughs> up with. I can't, I mean, uh, I, I, before this call, I was actually looking for all the old treatments and I can't find them. It was on some old version of a, the software. So I don't even know if I'd be able to uh, open it if I found them, but there were, there were, literally dozens of versions of a Jumanji 2 that I had submitted to <laughs> <Yeah>. them. <laughs> wow, that's such a trip. Yeah. Oh, man. And so, then, oh, sorry, Steve, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I was going to ask what was next, too. Was it, the ta was it the Tasmanian Devil film? So around that time, there was a, a, a yeah, around that time, I was, I was hired to write a bunch of things all at once. One of them was a Tasmanian Devil movie at Warner Brothers, which basically was going to be a buddy cop movie where the Tasmanian devil and a cop were partnered to solve a, <laughs> a, a crime. And, you know, the Tasmanian devil was like the worst cop, but he comes, you know, uh, he's obnoxious and destroyed everything. And he was the Tasmanian devil, you know, um, at a certain point, I remember I had too many writing jobs all at the same time. And so I couldn't write it. So I became a producer on it with the other producer and we hired another writer on it whose name escapes me. And so we'd started developing it that way for a while. I don't remember what ultimately happened. It didn't get made, but. Is it called Really Bad Cops? No. It wasn't called that. I don't know where <laughs> I found, I saw a title like that. It was All called right, Taz. Oh, it was called Taz. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, it'd be weird to make a Tasmanian devil movie and not have his name in the title. Yeah. Um, I was like just uh, unrelated to unmade movies, but um, I'm interest, always interested in process. Um, when, 
especially during this phase where I'm sure that you were trying to strike while the iron was hot and yes. you know, saying yes, clearly to too many things as it Yes, I did do that, yes. Um, but did you ever find a system or just have a, generally have one when you have to work on a lot of things? Like, do you just, do you always try to finish something and move on? Or do you have a way, you know, there's the, whether or not it's true, the famous old uh, James Cameron story of when he was working on a bunch of old projects and he had like a lazy Susan with three different typewriters on them. I don't even know if this is true. It's a great image though, where he would just work image. on a scene until <laughs> he ran out of ideas and then. Well, also the Stephen Susan. King apparently works on one thing at a certain in the morning and another thing in the afternoon, you know, Him, I um, believe because he's yeah. an insane monster. I, I didn't that. do it that way. <laughs> I, I would, I would write one thing and finish it and then move to the next thing and finish it. I write quickly though. I wrote quicker then even. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, they would usually give you, you know, as you know, like in your contract, like six weeks, sometimes eight weeks to be able to write a script. And I'd usually get it done in two weeks. You know what I mean? So I would not turn it in until it was the due date. Cause you don't want people to think that you're not giving them their money's worth. Yeah. So I would finish it in two weeks and then I'd go on to the next one, you know, and get that done in a couple of weeks and go on to the next, you know, so. Wow. And I guess probably uh, aspiring writers out there would like to know, and granted, I, you know, some of this is just, you have the aptitude for it or not, but I'm curious, do you, have you kind of reverse analyzed or engineered, however you put it, your writing process to write so fast. You know, I, I don't know if it's equatable to the idea of like speed reading versus normal reading, but do you think there's a certain trick you're doing that other people are not that makes them take longer? It's tough to say, you know, there's no wrong way to do it. If, it, if, if the way you do it works for you, you know, um, I know some people who put, uh, note cards all over the walls, every scene they're reshuffling them. Uh, you know, and uh, I knew I was involved with one project that I wrote for, and the producer was Ron Bass, who's a famous screenwriter. I wrote mine my way, but the way he, well, first of all, he had a whole staff of writers writing for him. Yeah, I was going to say he has his like, uh, and he's well, very upfront about it. Some people would call it his harem. Of yes. that, I don't know, but. but but what he would do, and I watched him do it, is he would have every every scene of the script pre um, beat he would beat out every scene of the script and he would have how many pages that scene would be. So at the end of the beat sheet, it, he'd know that it would be a, exactly a hundred and, you know, 15 page script or whatever. And every scene that his writers would turn and he'd give, you know, this scene, this scene, and this scene to three of his writers and they'd each write versions of that scene. And, you know, other writers would write, you know, the other three writers from his group would write the ending and, you know, then he'd collect everything and then he'd sort of tweak it all and make it, put it all in one voice. Um, that's another way to do it. I know some people who just sit down and start writing without thinking it through at all. It's different. And by the way, I do it differently depending on the project. Like, for example, when I'm up for something like He-Man, for example, I had to write so many different treatments to get that job, you know? I mean, it was literally eight months of writing free treatments mm -hmm. before I got that job. So when I hear people say, I'm not going to write a treatment for free, I say, well, you're crazy. If you want the job, you got to put, you got to do what you got to do to get it. You know, because a lot of, uh, there's one school of thought that, you know, don't write one word for free, mm -hmm. only write when someone's paying you. But 
a lot of other people will put that time in and they'll get the job instead of you. Yeah. It's, you know? it's yeah, the kind of thing that's much easier to pull off when, you know, you become an A-list writer. Exactly. Yeah. The treatment um, then becomes like an outline anyway, right? You just Right. Um, but, but what happens is when I'm writing these treatments for these, for these projects, um, a lot of times when I'm writing something for myself, you know, the script, you have something in mind, you have a rough idea of the direction it's going, but then as you're writing it, you discover things and it might take you in a different direction that's better. But when you have beaded things out for the executives to get the job or have beaded things out for the executives once you got the job and then they have to approve the outline, it's, it's harder to feel comfortable veering from that treatment because you're contracted to write what they have agreed to. Now, I'm not saying you can't call them up and say, here, I had a new idea. What do you think? But I prefer to discover these things as I'm writing them and, and, and have there be a slightly more flexible uh, uh, process. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, you know, when I'm hired to write something for somebody, if they, if they are more comfortable that I stick to the, stick to the script, basically stick, stick to the treatment, I, I try to my best to do that, you know, but if I really think something is not working at all and I have figured out another way to do it, I will pitch my new way, you know, and hope that they see that. A lot of times I have found, you know, when you're, when you're coming up with ideas, this is for, this is for a couple, this is two cents for all the aspiring <laughs> writers out there. So um, a lot of times you'll have an idea you think is a good idea for a scene or a moment or a whole movie. And then when you dig in, you realize why this isn't working. What you thought was great isn't working. Well, sometimes when you have meetings with an executive or a producer and ideas that come up in that meeting seem like good ideas. If they're not writers, they aren't necessarily familiar with the process of once you dig in and you uncover all the landmines and you realize why it's not working it's easy for them to say, well, it is a good idea because I liked it when we were talking about it the other day. Just do that. So you have to be aware of that. And there are ways, hopefully, that you can pitch the new ideas and, 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 and hopefully they'll, they'll see the light you know, of what you're, what you're saying. But, you know, it's, but when a lot of people are involved, it's, it's, it's always a different process than when you're just writing on your own. You mm-hmm. What was the fastest script you ever wrote, if you, if you don't mind telling us? The fastest script I ever wrote um, was in one day. (laughs) (laughs) How long was it? It was feature length. It was feature length. Um, It it was the script I wrote before I made my first film, Never on Tuesday. I, the producers that I was, I, I was. I had met Brad Wyman and Cassie Nowis, who were young producers at the time. This is before I ever made anything. They read my first script, which was The Dark Backward. I wanted to make it more than anything. They were working for Elliot Kastner at the time, who was funding tons of these low-budget movies that we were talking about. These low-budget, you know, Mm -hmm. genre movies, most of them straight to video. Although not all of them straight to video. I mean, he made a lot of really successful movies. You know, he he produced Angel Heart. One of his low-budget movies was Oxford Blues, which at the time was a huge hit. But anyway... um, so Elliot, they convinced Elliot that they liked me and wanted to work with me as a writer director. 
And Elliot said, I'll let him direct his first movie, but it can't be The Dark Backward. I don't want some weird movie with circus freaks in it. He said, uh, um, have him bring in something else. So I said, I'll bring in another script tomorrow. <laughs> so I ran home and I wrote a script. It was not a good script, <laughs> but it, was fin- it, it got finished. And I brought it in the next day and they read it and they said, this is still too weird for us. <laughs> Elliot said, do you have anything for the kids, meaning the teen audience? I said, I do. I have, I have a script for the teen audience. I didn't, but I said, I do. And uh, they said, well, uh, bring it in tomorrow. I said, well, can I have till Monday? Because I want to tweak it a little. And so that gave me about five days to run home and write <laughs> my first movie, Never on Tuesday. But I wrote The Chase in like three, in like three days. I wrote that in a long weekend. I wrote Mouse Hunt in a week. I mean, there were some scripts that I wrote really fast, you know, but then there are other scripts that took me months to write, you know? Yeah. Everything's a little different. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I don't think uh, I, I don't think I could do it today. I don't think I could write a script that fast today. Uh, I just don't think I have the, the, uh, the ability to, to concentrate energy. for that yeah, yeah you know <laughs> I, I, i'm 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 different now you know i still write fast but not quite that fast wow uh well moving on next on our list we've got a lovely title snots <laughs> snots snots would have been funny snots was also at warner brothers um so during that time when i was on all those lists uh <laughs> I pitched an idea to uh, Warner Brothers with the same producers as Mouse Hunt. We showed them a, a, a Laurel and Hardy short called Bratz, which has Laurel and Hardy playing themselves and also playing their own sons. <laughs> and, and they built giant furniture. So, so, so the, basically the fathers go away and leave the kids to go to sleep and the kids get into all kinds of trouble, you know, and they're jumping on the giant beds and they have giant sinks and, you know, it's, it, Laurel and Hardy uh, shrunken down playing little kids. So we showed that and we said, we want to do this. We want to bring this into the digital age. We want to take real comedians like Eddie Murphy and we want to have kid bodies, but we want to <laughs> digitally put the, the comedians heads on the body. So the, the comedians like Eddie Murphy play the fathers and the sons. So it's another one of those bizarre moments where it got sold in the room and uh, I, I, uh, and I wrote it for them. And, and uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I, I learned a bitter lesson on that movie. Um, and, and it goes back to something you were talking about earlier about, did I write the Jumanji treatments for free? Okay. <laughs> so this pre- predates Jumanji two by probably months or a year. And I turned in my draft of snots and uh, and the uh, producers and the executive gave me some notes on another draft. And I had my agent um, bill Warner Brothers for the next draft, which was in my contract. And when they did, the executive called my agent and said, no, this is the free complimentary producers tweaks. This is not the next draft, which is a common thing that oh, happens yeah. in Hollywood writing. And I stupidly said that 
it should be the second draft. It should be commenced. I got the notes from the studio. It should be the, the contracted second draft. And I kind of dug my heels in a little bit and it, it was off putting to the executive. And I, I, I was naive. I didn't understand the interpersonal aspect to the process as much as I learned as a result of this. And so ultimately my agent convinced me that I was being um, unreasonable and I agreed to do the draft, but I feel it took the, um, I feel it took the, uh, the sheen off the, the excitement of the project. Uh, so, so it, ultimately I did a number of other drafts um, and um, I even got hired to do other drafts, but, and then some of the drafts then involved the, the same actors who played <laughs> the fathers and the sons playing their grandfathers as well. I mean, it would have been a very funny movie. It ultimately didn't happen for a number of reasons, but that, on that process, I learned that valuable lesson that I've never, I've never made that mistake again. Keep them happy. Well, that's, I think there's something to that. I think there's something to, you know, my agent said to me around that time, and it's advice that I, I, I still um, hold dear. And that is that projects come and go, but if they like working with you, that's what they'll remember. Mm -hmm. um, if they don't like working with you, it doesn't matter how good the project is, that's what they'll remember also. So, and I generally believe everybody who's worked with me has liked me. And I wasn't unpleasant ever in the process of that project either, but I didn't know, I didn't understand yet um, the, the playing ball nature of that aspect of the process. Um, also what I learned from him, which a lot of young writers, I think it would benefit to learn is that when you get notes in the room, a lot of times the notes are really bad and really stupid <laughs> and really destructive to the script, but don't fight them in the room. Don't get defensive. Don't fight the notes. Just take all the notes, listen to them, be, you know, let the, the person who's giving you the notes be heard and then say, you're going to go back and you're going to think about how to make them work. And then you go back and you, you assess, you know, can some of these work? Can some of these not work? Is there a reason that they're having a problem here and their solution is a bad idea, but maybe you can come up with a better solution that solves what their problem is. They just didn't know how to articulate it, et cetera, et cetera. There's a yeah, lot of, the, lot of writers. Note behind who, the note. Yeah. There's a lot of writers who get very defensive and fight each note. And I just think that's bad form, you know? Well, it creates the kind of reverse psychology too, where yeah. maybe they didn't even care about it. Like I've, I've yeah. gotten bad notes where the person literally doesn't remember giving it because they, yes. they weren't like reading off a list. But yeah. if you fight them on that note, then they will remember it. Exactly. And then, you know, some of them are a little immature if we're being honest and they might well, everybody's decide, got this an is the ego, most you know? important note ever. Yeah, everybody's got an ego and um, everybody, you know, every, you want to be as tactful. As, it's, a, it's a person to person business. You know, you have to, Having good people skills is very helpful, you know. Mm -hmm. Good, That's some good advice. advice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, moving on from snots, next we have up Roman blood. Okay, so Roman blood. When John Callie was at UA, and when we couldn't get the project that we were offering to Jim Carrey and John Travolta, and you know all that stuff done. Roman Blood, John Cali uh, hired me to write Roman Blood. And that's the one where one of the producers was Ron Bass, the, the 
the famous screenwriter. Roman Blood, based on a series of um, books about, it's basically Chinatown in ancient Rome. It's about a character named, it's a series of books. It's, it may actually make a great series uh, today. Um, it's about a uh, private detective named Gordianus the Finder, who in ancient Rome solves mysteries. And uh, it would have been so super cool. I would have loved to have seen that movie get made. Uh, working with Ron Bass was really great and educational. And I'll tell you, this actually was a, I don't know if this was a good idea or a bad idea, but it was <laughs> when I turned in the first draft, I had a Roman centurion deliver the script to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you hire one of those? I just had an actor friend and we rented a costume and he just showed up and he gave a whole Friends Romans Countryman speech and delivered the script. A little bit of showmanship, I thought maybe was a maybe a good idea. I don't know. It did end up in some, I think it like Army Archard's column in Hollywood Reporter or Variety or something. But uh, it didn't help get the movie made. But it, it, <laughs> it did. It was I do think it was it, it was a good script and I think it would have made a great movie. That's all. Wait, was this around the time of like Gladiator and all those movies were? I think so. To pop yeah, up? I think it was around then. Yeah. Oh man, that that that's awesome because we had Josh Olson on the show where he yeah, told us the story about the uh, Halo when they sent all the, the the Spartans to all the studios to hand all deliver the, the script. Chiefs. Oh, funny. funny. Yeah, and they had to sit and wait. While that's they the read best them. part is the people <laughs> in sitting costume. and waiting. To wait to reclaim the script. Classic Hollywood. I assume your centurion got to go home after he uh, delivered. He walked in. Yeah, we we in fact we staged it so that we were having a meeting to turn in the script, and I didn't hand it to him. But at a certain point, he walked. I was in the room when he walked in with the script. (laughs) We said, you know, there's a a courier delivering the script, so it'll be here any minute. You know that kind of thing. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, and then how about Real Monsters? So Real Monsters was um, when I finished directing Detroit Rock City, but before it came out, um, Gene Simmons um, was trying to capitalize, we all obviously were trying to capitalize on you know the heat that Detroit Rock City was generating. And he had a uh, property um, with another writer uh, called Real Monsters and he pitched it to me and basically his pitch was it's, it's a, a, an updated version of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein where two idiot dock workers are working a graveyard shift at the New York Harbor and a ghost ship kind of floats into the harbor and there's a big crate and they open the crate to see what's in it and three monsters escape into the city and they are scared for their jobs. So they got to go find them and return them to the crates, you know, and uh, that's basically the idea. And I turned in the script and Detroit Rock City bombed. And this, then they didn't want to have anything to do with the script anymore at New Line after that. So, uh... oh, so yeah, so we sold it at New Line. So New Line bought it because they were about to release Detroit Rock City and because they wanted to make sure they had our, our next project if Detroit Rock City was a hit. Detroit Rock City wasn't a hit. So when it wasn't a hit, the project just kind of fizzled. Oh, man. Was Gene Simmons going to be in it at all? Or is he just producing? No, he was just going to be a producer on it. 
And by the way, Gene Simmons was a great producer on Detroit Rock City. I, I will uh, say that to the end of time. He was very supportive of the director, me, and his philosophy always was you hire the director to direct the movie. You don't hire the director to tell the director how to direct the movie. And he said, if ever there was a dispute between me and the studio, he would always side with me. If this is what he said, he said, if the dispute would result in more money, $1 more, he'll side with the studio. If the dispute is irrelevant to how much more money the movie will make, he'll side with the director. And so every, <laughs> every uh, dispute I had with the studio, and the disputes were minimal. I mean, it was like, you know, should this song be um, Freebird or should it be Running with the Devil? You know what I mean? And somebody would say, ah, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. And, and in the meetings, uh, Gene Simmons would say to the studio exec, is this going to sell one more ticket? Well, no, but he said, then Adam wins the, that battle, you know? So he was great. <laughs> I wonder what other properties he had, because I, I think I remembered once reading in some article around the time Detroit Rock City came out that he had a couple of projects he was trying to get off the ground. He had a ton of things around town at that time. He was really trying to sell a lot of stuff and he got a bunch of stuff set up. And we even got a, a, another thing set up together at MTV which was a horror TV show. Um, I forget the name of it now. But anyway, it didn't ultimately happen, but we developed it. You know, it was like, it was going to be like a Tales from the Crypt kind of anth anthology, you know, horror show. That's so cool. Yeah, because I'll never forget seeing like Phantom of the Park and stuff as a <laughs> yeah. kid and all that, you know. <laughs> and then, yeah, he's such he was such a badass actor too in the 80s as well, yeah. so... Oh man, yeah. I wish I could have saw more of him. That'd been awesome. Yeah, he that... was great in that Michael Crichton movie. Oh yeah, he's the fantastic in yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. Uh, speaking of horror, so one thing that we did talk about briefly uh, on your original episode two years ago uh, was the movie you were doing with Stan Winston called Posse, but we never actually right. talked about what the premise of the movie was. You just kind of told some behind the scenes. So the premise of Posse was that um, a spaceship, carry a a a, uh, a police transport space uh, vessel, is uh, carting the universe's most dangerous criminal to a prison planet. But on board, this is how it opens. On board, the um, the intergalactic criminal, the alien criminal gains control of the uh, ship and it crash lands on earth uh, in a small town where the local cop happens to be an Adam Sandler type guy. Adam Sandler was the biggest comedy star at the moment when this movie uh, sold to Disney. Um, and so, so uh, weird stuff starts happening in Adam Sandler's town and he's the cop. Meanwhile, three intergalactic cops from different planets, all different aliens who have been um, sent to retrieve the criminal have zeroed in on his um, coordinates on earth and have now arrived in this town. And one thing leads to another and they end up teaming up with Adam Sandler. So Adam Sandler and these three bizarro aliens are now hunting the universe's most dangerous criminal and Stan Winston was going to create all the alien. And it was, and uh, it was one of those situations where it sold really fast. 
I wrote the script really fast. The studio loved it. We were getting ready to go. Stan Winston was going to produce it. Stan Winston was also, it was, you know, it was involved in basically the germ of the idea for the story. Cause he was creating, he was producing stuff at that time and he wanted to come up with ideas that serve service what he does best. I knew him because he did the uh, makeup effects for mouse hunt and small soldiers. So he came to me with it and uh, it was all ready to go. And, uh, and at the time, again, as will happen, <laughs> the then president of um, that division of Disney was Todd Garner. He was um, replaced and the new guy who came in um, canceled all the previous projects. So, uh, had hmm. Winston like made any sketches or anything? It was just getting started. That was that part of the equation was just starting. Oh, tragic yeah um well, well the actually, other thing oh sorry steve go no, ahead one, no just to make up for what i said earlier when i said really bad cops I, I i misread it it was called bad cop worse cop that's what it was announced as that i see here in Starlog about uh, am i involved with that yes the, that was the tasmanian <laughs> devil oh is that the is that the original title the tasmanian devil yeah bad cop wow. worse cop i don't so remember I had, that I, I had it i had the title completely wrong okay I, I guess I have a vague recollection that that title was exi existed yeah, at one Taz, point. Manny Ultimately, we all title. referred to it as Taz. Yeah. Yeah. And then it, they say. Good the, cop, Taz cop. That's yeah. One cop's a vicious sleazeball. The other is the Tasmanian devil. That's Starlog <laughs> 174. That's what it's. Anyway, I'm, I, I miss said the title. Uh. I was going to say, along with Posse, another thing um, on your original episode that we talked a lot about the, you know, you getting the job and all your different treatments for eight months and then subsequently what became of the He-Man project. But we also, I think, because you couldn't really remember and we hadn't read the script and you told us before this episode, you still don't remember. I don't now I've read the script. Okay. Uh, we can talk a little bit about what your He-Man was. Please remind me. Uh, yeah, and I'm curious what this jogs in your memory, because I'm a little, I'm interested to know to what extent you end up being able to remember any of this. Um, well, I remember this. How your adaptation process. I don't was. know exactly which draft you had, but I remember we introduced at the beginning that there's the planet of Eternia, it's split down the middle, the good half and the bad half due to thousands of years of war yeah, between it, the two it sides. It predates really, it doesn't predate the books, but of Game of Thrones, the HBO yeah, yeah. show. It had, it had a bit of that vibe where yeah. the good guys erected this giant wall yeah, and the bad yeah. guys are all on the other side. Exactly. And they, they, there's a big, in the city of, in the, in the big sort of main city, which is beautiful glass, futuristic city, there's a big, I guess there's a big parade or a wedding. I can't remember now. And it's attacked. The, the wall's been it's, breached uh, and the dark side attacks the city. Like, and the, the idea was that it's supposed to be like 9-11. You know, we were going to, it was sort of, we were trying to yeah, be. Yeah, it's, because uh, I was, well, I was partly curious to read it too. Um, and it kind of makes sense because this was coming on the heels of like Lord of the Rings, you know, which took the fantasy seriously. Um, I wouldn't say that it's a serious he-man movie and to the extent that it's not like fun and doesn't have jokes or something um but yeah because it's it's the prey you're talking about it was king randor and in yours i thought it was interesting adam who becomes he-man yeah uh, is not a prince 
Yeah. Or he doesn't know he is. Well, yeah, he, yeah, he, he doesn't know he is, exactly. And, and the parade is to celebrate. It's basically like a bar mitzvah parade to celebrate Prince Joseph, like, officially entering manhood. Right. Uh, oh, right. Now I remember. Wait. Yeah, and, and, Skeletor, and Skeletor feels that if he can kill the firstborn, he... he uh, yeah, there's a prophecy right. about the firstborn will destroy but him. No, but, but, but Adam was hidden in plain sight as, like, the mechanic's son but yes. he's really the firstborn now i now it's starting because they to were back. twins and he was the yeah. first one to come out right exactly um and uh duncan the man at arms had convinced the king about this prophecy so he gave the first kind of merlin yeah. and you know king arthur style yeah. I sure. have to and a little and a little um a little oedipus and the prophecy and uh, the the firstborn and all that yeah yeah but then so skeletor attacks uh and he just straight up murders prince joseph more like almost kills the king and takes him because he thinks the king he's gonna like uh read his brain with right. magic uh to find out where the sword of power is right so then so the movie really is kind of like a two-part quest with the man at arms and his daughter tila and they tell adam very quickly you know you're the real uh heir to the throne we have right. to go find the sword and they finding the sword is actually a pretty cool scene that I don't think any of this is, you took from the games or not games, sorry, the show uh, or the toys. You, I feel like you probably made it up. Is that they go to this city that's kind of you describe as being it's almost like an updated version of Pompeii, right, where right. the entire city and all the people who are in it have basically been petrified and are like right. stone. And that's where they get the sword. And then after they get the sword, now they have to go find Castle Gray Skull. Exactly. Uh, and because Skeletor has found a way to break through the wall. Right. Uh, and yeah, it's a. Uh, it Thank you for reminding me of all yeah. this because uh, <laughs> I've written a lot of scripts since then. And I, I just, I guess I blocked most well, of that I, out. You know, it makes sense to me too, based on how fast you write. Because my writing partner and I talk about this a lot, where it's like scripts that we end up spending like six months to a year on as far as doing lots of rewrites. You always remember that kind of inside and out. But anything you write really fast if it doesn't end up getting made that the memory kind of just drifts away. Well, but I'll tell you this too. And I don't mean this to sound, um, I don't mean this to sound bad, but I, there are scripts I've made. I don't, I mean, scripts I've written. I don't remember writing at all. I mean, I, I remember writing He-Man. I don't remember the details of the story, but there are scripts. There are, there are a couple movies I, I don't remember making. So, you know, it, 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 this stuff's a lot of this stuff's a long time ago, you know? What's cool, too, is that like when I went to go see the He-Man movie in the theaters, because um, I grew up watching the cartoons and I had the action figures and then I'm sitting in the theater and then all of a sudden there's all these these characters that I had no idea who the hell they were. And I guess at the time it was like throw a bunch of new villains in there so you can sell their toys. But, you right. know, I wasn't I wasn't at that point of selling toys. It was like I kind of grew up playing with them and watching the cartoon. I wanted to see stuff I was I, I knew. And all of a sudden, it was just this little weird little wizard dude and all this. Shit. I'm like, what the? What is this? Yeah. But going through your script, though, it's like you, you put in like, I mean, I'm so bummed this didn't come out because I was like, you have Trapjaw, Beastman, Whiplash. You have all the people out of love, Orca, all the people out of Orcos in it, and Zodiac, yeah. all the people I would have loved to have seen in that earlier movie. Well, that was the idea. We wanted to make sure that we we did all that. And also, too, I'll tell you, the really sad thing about it is that. The, I must have told you this at the time in the last the last time we talked about this, but 
the reason the studio didn't make it, I mean, we were ready to go. I mean, and John Woo was directing it, but Aragon had not performed for yeah. the same studio. And they had decided that because of that, fantasy movies are dead. One, Which, one movie. Yeah, one movie didn't entire, work. So fantasy right. movies are dead. So they let the, they let the property lapse. And it just and it just died, you know. But so. it's like I know, but it's just like so not the same thing because that movie. I, I mean, I, I watch sword and fantasy crap because that's what I, I grew up watching. It. I love the sword and the sorcerer and all that shit. But Aragon just wasn't a good movie. But yeah. this was, you know, you have like sword sorcery. You have the laser guns. Like you have like this was like this really cool meld of. It's just it was something. It's something different, you know, and still something that I haven't seen yet. Like. You know, it just really bums me out about this. And then seeing John Woo do something fantasy again, like it would have been so great. It would have been so great. You know, because his earlier martial arts movies, you know, were very well, different. Yeah. So he man's like a viable brand. And I feel it, it, at this point, because this is like 2004, right? Somewhere around then. Mm -hmm. I feel it was that kind of nice bridge of old enough for some nostalgia and those us kids who had grown up to be kind of the prime movie demo. Um, but like Aragon, for I guess listeners who don't know, it's like that was kind of a, like the books were to some extent propelled by their own weird backstory, which was that they were written by like a 15 year old and they were self-published initially. Right, right. And so not to say that the fans of that didn't actually like them, but I feel it's that's the kind of thing where like, well, I don't know if that is going to translate into a movie necessarily, like if a 15 year old had also made the movie, maybe that would have been its own PR thing. Well, they wanted like another trilogy, you know, they wanted to go with like another book, uh, you know, yeah. Lord of the Rings was so well, the books were Yeah. Well, the books were popular. The toys at that time weren't on the upswing, you know? So I think that's why they greenlit Aragon first. Um, and uh, unfortunately, it just that cinched the deal for He-Man over at Fox. Well, people <laughs> should definitely go back and listen to the episode where we talk more uh, about the process on that because we also go into the, and we won't repeat it here, but the extremely lengthy <laughs> series yeah. of hands that this project, like a baton, right. was passed yeah. to after you. Yeah, and um, I think the same thing back then. It's just like, if they would have just made your version in like 07, 05, 04, then they could have still remake it today. Of enough time has passed but then again we could have got like probably more sequels from what you did well, because i think was... that would have happened i really and, do believe uh, that would have happened. it's funny because we talked about so you were on a little over two years ago when we recorded your episode and at that point in time we note well now they're finally making it but they didn't mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> like it's been, it's been <laughs> yeah. two years and that movie hasn't yeah. i don't know where it's at now because I, I think i think it does feel Kevin like Smith secret. produced an animated version uh, yeah, they keep of, doing yeah. new animated mm -hmm. ones that yeah. actually make it to the screen. Yeah. Um, I, I should have looked it up before we started recording. I don't know where He-Man is at now. It does feel like the kind of thing where once a year it's like, we're finally making it, guys. And then I know, a couple of years later, you're like, keeps, oh, wait, whatever happened? To... Keeps popping yeah. up. Because they announced someone they that who they were casting for Adam. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that was another thing in yours. So it seemed like I was interpreting this correctly. Um because it was always funny as a kid watching the show, even when you're a little kid and aren't that discerning. I still feel like my friends and I would be like, it's weird that Prince Adam is also so buff. <laughs> yeah. It's like then when he becomes He-Man, it's more just like his clothes fall off. Um, 
it seemed like in yours he was going to be more of like you know an actor who just gains power he wasn't going to become i don't remember ultimately what john woo's plan was for that now that i think about it i don't remember because i know different things were discussed at the time were we going to have one actor play him as Adam, and then you know, go full Bill, Bill Bixby from kinda Hulk, sh- and go another actor, or yeah, were we gonna, or Shazam, yeah, kinda. I mean, or were we going to have it be a digital version of him as He Man? I don't remember where it landed, or if it even ultimately did land, because it didn't get in a chance. In the script, to it just seems like he gets added strength and abilities yeah, with the sword. Yeah. It's not really described that he yeah. gets bigger physically. Yeah. Um, well, that about brings us to the end. I mean, I'm sure there have been <laughs> other unmade things, but uh, we won't mention it uh, in in any specifics, but we also were talking before you run because we know that you had a movie you were getting set to make that like, unfortunately, yes. so many movies of people I know was killed by COVID, but, so now, but now you're saying it might still happen. Well, hopefully, you know, yeah. I mean, there's no... The movie I, I had was just about to start. We were hiring a casting director. We were figuring out where we were going to shoot it, if it was going to be in L.A., if it was going to be, you know, overseas. We, we didn't know. And then COVID just killed it. The moment, you know, so much about getting movies made is the momentum. You yeah. know, you just kind of got to, you know, once the train starts, you got to jump on and you got to, you just got to go, go, go. But sadly, um, the momentum died when, COVID hit hopefully it will come back again so I have faith it will Uh, it's a period piece so it it doesn't feel like it will go out of style if we make it now or five years from now you know uh yeah it's a a subject I would very much like to see even though I can't go into details uh and hopefully you could afford enough music God, (laughs) well that was part of the plan we did have the rights wrapped up Ah. for that so Um, well, thank you, Adam, so much for coming on. Oh, man. Thank you, guys. This has been great. This was awesome. And yeah. And yeah, check out Adam's movies. The Dark Backwards. Awesome. And to this day, you're seeing in that Burt Reynolds movie, the last movie star, the scene with him driving with himself in the car is like one of the most like memorable and haunting scenes to me. It never leaves my mind. And I always wow. go back and I'm always thinking of it all the time. Thank you and so much. Man. Like that, that scene is so powerful. <laughs> like I can't, tell, well, I can't tell you, man. Like that's coming. That's getting a Blu-ray, a new one, right? Dark backward, well, dark back. Well, Oh, there's, no. <laughs> there's a snag on that one too. So. Oh, <laughs> all right. Well, we won't get into it. Just, it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, yeah. To end again on an up note after that, yeah. I will say, and I was texting with you about it uh, when I was uh, not bedridden, couch ridden, recovering for my second, second Pfizer shot. Yeah. Because um, I'm working on a chase move script right now. So I'm just like, I'm just going to watch a bunch of chase movies. Watched uh, The Getaway. Uh, and I, it was very hard to find. I had to find it illegally, unfortunately, which was your movie, The Chase, yeah. with Charlie Sheen. <laughs> uh-huh. Um and I, you know, I feel that movie held up. It's very fun. Uh, Thank you I, so much, man. I, I, I mean, don't normally uh, say people should pirate things, but if they're not available any other way, hey, uh, I, I'm okay if people see that movie any way they can. Uh, you know, that movie I'm proud of. We we made it for very little money, and uh, we had a blast. You know, and were you the uh, first person to use Henry Rollins as an actor like yes, that? Yes. Yeah, that, that that really blew my... At the time, when I saw an ad that he was going to play a cop, 
it was kind of mind blowing because if you knew his history and his spoken word about how much he hate cops, yeah. you it was, know, it it's like it was Zero Mosel's son. Yeah, pretty, yeah, yeah, pretty amazing. And the fact that that was an independent movie and you ended up selling it to a studio because that thing came out. I thought it was like a gonna, I thought it, I had the impression that it was like a big budget studio film. I didn't realize that was like an independent independent movie. That's exactly the truth. And I may have said this the last time, but it's but it bears repeating. Um, everything is perception in Hollywood, right? So it's an independent film that was picked up by Fox through a neg negative pickup deal and was very successful. It made a lot of money based on, you know, based on what we spent making it. But the perception was that it was a studio movie that just did okay. Yeah. And as a result, it didn't give me a big bump, you know, as a, as a filmmaker in town, um, uh, all because of that perception, you know? Uh, and as a, a final selling point to the movie, what, what really blew my mind, because I think I'd only seen it once, probably in the theater when it first came out, um, is that you you predate Bad Boys 2 in having a scene where a bunch of corpses are falling out of like a you know corner <laughs> truck, whatever that, and cars are falling on the windshields and they're grossly running over them. And I like you texted me back that it was nice for Michael Bay to show you what that sequence would have looked like if you'd had unlimited time and money. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but you did it first. I did it first. Um, well, thanks again for joining us. And thank you, all the listeners. Um, is, are you on social media in any way? Yeah, I'm easy to find on, on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So please say hello. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter at Never Made Film and on Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. We also recommend that you check out the Electric Now app, which is a free app that allows you to watch movies, TV shows, and more importantly, video versions of our podcasts and the other podcasts on our network, like the 430 Movie and Inglorious Trexperts. We'd like to thank everyone here at Electric Surge Network, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. And until next time, I'm Josh Miller. Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. <laughs>